The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here. And it is good to be with you. Um, it's good for us to be able to join together and uh, come to God's Word. And we're continuing this morning in our series in the book of Joshua. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Joshua chapter 7, Joshua 7. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs uh, in front of you. And we also project the passage on the screen so you can follow along there. But uh, we're in the portion of Joshua that focuses on the conquest of the land. So God's people have come out of the wilderness, right? They had wandered in the wilderness for many years. They've come out of the wilderness. They've crossed over the Jordan River. They've taken for themselves the sign of God's covenant. And they are now starting to take the land, take possession of it, right? They're battling against cities, against these foreign nations, these warring nations. And, and they're starting to take the land. And by God's strength and his power, as we heard last week, God won an important battle against Jericho. He had won the battle and defeated Israel's enemies. And now this morning, they're coming up against a little smaller enemy, that of the city of Ai. Ai is smaller, it's less prepared than Jericho was, and so seemingly it would be an easy victory, right? They just defeated Jericho, now surely they will be able to take the city of Ai. It will be an easy win, or will it, right? I mean, we expect the strong, we expect the powerful, we expect the mighty to defeat the weak and the small and the inexperienced and the unprepared, right? That's what we expect. That's what we expect in the stories that we read. That's what we expect in the movies that we see. That's what we expect in life. And that's what was expected on February 11th, 1990 in Tokyo at the Tokyo Dome. Because on that night, Mike Tyson, who was at the time the undefeated, undisputed world heavyweight champion of the world, went up against Buster Douglas. Buster Douglas that evening was a 42 to 1 underdog, and everyone knew that it was going to end the way that every other Tyson fight had ended before, with a first round knockout of Douglas. That he would just be annihilated. It would be an easy victory for the champion. And yet the underdog defeated the champion that night. It was a modern day David and Goliath story. And we love these stories, don't we? We love David and Goliath stories, right? When against all odds, the scrappy, the upstart wins the match, the game, the battle, the, the game and the battle that they had no chance of winning. They had no business even competing in. And yet there they are standing victorious. We love those stories from the perspective of David, that is, <laughs> the Davids, right? Those stories are never told from the perspective of Goliath, right? Now, now of course, we, we don't care about the perspective of the real Goliath, right? That Philistine, right? That warrior, right? That evil soldier. We don't worry about his perspective, but, but what about the Goliaths in our modern day? The strong and the mighty who have trained and worked for years who are supposed to win but lose. I mean, what goes through their minds? What becomes of them? 
through all the excitement of Buster Douglas's win, what was going through Tyson's mind hours and days and months afterwards? Right? It's like, what, what would have come of the 27 Yankees if they had never won? Or the Jordan-led Bulls if they never made the NBA final? Or, or Tom Brady if he lost every single Super Bowl? What would happen to those people? To that person, to those teams who were supposed to win but lost? Well, let's start our reading this morning, Joshua 7, beginning in verse 1. And we'll see what comes of Israel. Now, we're only going to read the first nine verses right now. We're going to read the entirety of the passage as we go through the sermon. But we're just starting with the first nine verses. This is God's word. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and sp- spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not make all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gates as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, we do ask that you would guide us this morning. Lead us into your truth. Let us see your grace, your glory, your goodness in this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we see what's taking place, right? Israel coming off this amazing victory, trouncing Jericho. They now come against Ai, right? And so this is a smaller city, a smaller town. They should be able to win it. But Joshua still does his due diligence. He sends the spies and the spies come back and they've spied out the city. And what do they say? They say, we've got this, right? Like, Joshua, don't worry about it, right? Don't send the whole army. Don't send the whole nation. Two, maybe 3,000 soldiers should do it. All you have to do is sit back, Joshua, and wait for the announcement of victory, And so that's what they did, right? Their expectation was like this was going to be like an NFL team going up against the middle school B team, right? Like it's just going to be a destruction. It's a cakewalk. Wait for the victory. But no victory came. Instead of victory, Israel faced defeat. The soldiers fled before the men of Ai and 36 Israelites were killed. 
And instead of confidence, what happened to Israel was confusion and fear. Right? In verse 5, we read, the hearts of the people melted. The hearts of the people melted. Now, we've heard that phrase before. It was on the lips of Rahab. Remember a few chapters ago, Rahab the prostitute said that at the hearing of Israel, of what Israel's God had done in the wilderness, how he had defeated these various kings, that the hearts of the people of the land had melted. But now it's not the people of the land whose heart is melting, it's now Israel's. They were defeated and afraid and confused. We hear the confusion in Joshua's words. Look at verse 7. O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? You hear his confusion? It doesn't make sense to him. He can't understand this. And so he starts to question God's ways. He starts to question God's goodness. Why have you done this, God? Why have you let this happen? Have you forgotten your promises? It would have been better to be in the wilderness. Did you hear him say that? Doesn't that sound familiar to us as well? I mean, it sounds like the grumblings that we hear in numbers, doesn't it? You remember back in Numbers, the people of God who had just come out of Egypt, right? Brought us into the land. You're starting to fulfill your promises, and we have died. The people will be blotted from the earth, and your name will be made light of. In his confusion, Joshua blames God. But God, God's not going to take the blame. Instead, God responds to Joshua's confusion with clarity. Let's pick up our reading in verse 10. In verse 10, we read, The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So you see what God is saying to Joshua. He's saying, Joshua, the problem isn't me. The problem is thee. In verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed. They have taken the things that were devoted for destruction. They have stolen and lied. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to remember something from last week. 
So last week in chapter 6, verse 18, before Israel takes Jericho, before they go around the city, before they yell, before the, the, the walls come tumbling down, God said to them, before you take this city, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So what God was saying last week, before you take Jericho, he was saying, don't, don't keep the plunder. Don't keep the stuff. It's to be destroyed. The money, the robes, the treasure, those things are not for you. God was saying, look, I'm giving you the land. It's all going to be yours. I'm giving these things to you. You will possess it. It will belong to you. But this one thing you cannot have, you can't have the plunder. You can't have the gold. You can't have the silver. These things are not for you. Now, doesn't that sound like what God said to Adam and Eve back in Eden? Do you remember that? Way back in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain, and he made Adam and Eve in his own image, and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he said, this garden is for you. It's yours. Tend it. Keep it. Cultivate it. Work the ground. The trees, the, the fruit of the trees, right? The vegetation, it's yours. Eat of it, all of it, right? But one. It's all yours, but this one thing, right? You can't eat of this. The tree of the knowledge of good, of e uh, good and evil, right? Eat the pomegranates and, and, and the pears and the figs and the apples and all these. I, I don't know if those were the fruits that were in Eden or not. But, but you know, God said, these are for you. But not this one. He said to Israel, have the land, but don't take the plunder. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did? Right? They were like, you know, little, little children at Christmas when you say, don't touch the tree. <laughs> they ate of the very thing God said don't eat of. And what did Israel do? They took the plunder. Why had defeat come upon Israel? Well, God clarifies. It's not because God had failed. It's because Israel had sinned. Let's keep reading. Pick up our reading in verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken and he brought near the clans of Judah. And the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Achan's confronted by Joshua and he confesses. He took a cloak, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold. Right? He says, I coveted. I saw it. It was beautiful. It was attractive. And I took it. Now, what's interesting is how little he actually took. 
I mean, a robe, 200 shekels of silver, 50, uh, a piece of gold weighing 50 shekels, that, that converts to a little over a pound. So it's a very little bit of gold and a little bit of silver and a, a nice robe. And, and so you can start to imagine maybe what was going through Achan's mind. Right? Maybe imagine what was going through his mind. Now, I know that God said, don't take these things. I know God said the plunder isn't for us. But, but I mean, come on, what will it hurt? A pound of gold, some silver, a nice robe. I mean, who's really going to know? I mean, God won't miss it. And, and by the way, I'll keep the big laws, right? I won't commit adultery. I won't take the Lord's name in vain. And heck, I'll even take the stuff that I take and plunder, and I'll tithe off of it, and so everybody will be benefit. I mean, it's a win-win-win situation. I mean, does it really matter? It's not hard to imagine that this was maybe what was going through Aiken's mind, because this is what goes through our minds, isn't it? I mean, who... Who's it really going to hurt if I gossip just a little? I mean, does it really matter if I make that scathing remark on social media? After all, I did it anonymously, so no one's going to know it was me anyway. Those thoughts that we cling to, a vengeance, hatred, lust, and greed. It's just a little sin, a little disobedience. Does it really matter? But we know it matters, don't we? And Aiken absolutely knew it mattered. And you know how we know he knew it mattered? Because he hid it. I mean, think about it. If it wasn't that big of a deal, if it, wasn't, if it didn't really matter, if it wasn't going to hurt anyone, why did he have to hide it? I mean, this, again, is very similar to Adam and Eve, isn't it? Don't eat of the tree. And what did they do after they ate? They hid. They hid from one another, right? Because before they had sinned, they were naked and without shame. But, but now they had to put on um, fig leaves to cover themselves, to hide from one another. But they also hid from God. Because they knew that they had sinned. They knew that they had disobeyed. Like Achan and like us, they hid. I mean, isn't that what we do with our sin? We hide it away. We figuratively dig that hole. We put it in the ground. We pretend like it's not really there. We hide. And we hide because we know that sin is an affront against God. In verse 1, it said that Israel had broken faith. That language, breaking faith, it's used in other places to speak of adultery. Israel had committed adultery against their God. By sinning against God, Achan and Israel and we, me, you, are committing adultery against our Lord. You see, it is no little thing to sin against the Lord. It is no little thing to disobey his word. And that's what God is clarifying. That's what he's telling us. It's adultery, it's rebelling, it's transgressing the covenant. And this transgression, it is costly. Let's finish our reading in verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. 
And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Now, we've already seen some of the cost of Achan's sin, right? That one man's sin brought pain to the entire community, right? They lost the battle. 36 men were killed. But now we see the full cost depicted. We see what sin deserves. Judgment and punishment and death. The wages of sin is death. Now look, this this should make us feel a little uneasy as we read these verses. It should. Right? Like, these are are the verses that that the senior pastor should give to the associate pastor. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, but it should make us feel a little uneasy, right? A little uncomfortable. Stoning and death, right? I mean, don't we go in our minds to start to think and wonder, like, where's grace? Where's mercy? Where's forgiveness? I mean, this feels so, so Old Testament, doesn't it? I mean, it is the Old Testament, of course, but, but it feels like all those stereotypes and those depictions of the Old Testament that we have of, of, of a violent time, of, of a, a lawless time, of, of an angry God who brings judgment and destruction, not like the New Testament that's full of grace and love and forgiveness, right? That's how we sometimes think about it. And so it makes us feel uneasy. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Well, instead of just relieving us of the discomfort, um, I want to say a few things about this passage, about these verses, that might help give us understanding and help us to see that that, uh, what should drive us in this is to the Lord. The first thing I want us to see is, is that I don't see repentance in this passage. On the part of Achan, I don't see repentance Yes, he confesses, verses 20 and 21, but as I've read this, and I've read it again and again and again, I don't see contrition. What I see is simply someone who has been caught. There's an admission of guilt, but I don't see remorse. And one of the reasons why I don't see remorse or repentance is because we know that repentance and faith is met with grace. In fact, we saw it. Just think about this. A few chapters ago, right, when Rahab, Rahab, who... Who had sinned? Rahab, the prostitute, the pagan, the one who was outside of God's people. What happens? She makes this amazing statement of faith. She clings to God, and she and her whole household are delivered. But that's not what we see with Achan. So I don't see repentance. But the other thing, and, and maybe even more importantly, what I see in these verses is the immensity of God's holiness and the severity of our sin. 
The immensity of God's holiness and the severity of our sin, and y'all, that isn't just an Old Testament ideal. That is something that is consistent throughout Scripture. God, what we read time and again is the Holy One, right? That He is without sin, that He is glorious, that He is majestic, that He is transcendent, right? I know that we love to think of God as being near to us and that he, he is our heavenly father and that we're brought into the family of God and Jesus is our elder brother and he is our friend and all those things are gloriously true. And God is very different. He is not like man. He does not sin. He does not break his own law. God is holy And y'all, that is true in the Old Testament and it's true in the New. And it is true today. And what also is true is the severity of our sin. I mean, remember what sin is. It's adultery against God. And that what sin deserves is death. For Achan's rebellion, for Israel's transgression, for my sins... And yours, the cost is death. The wages of sin is death. That is not a New Test or an Old Testament passage that's straight out of Romans. The wages of sin is death. For sin to be dealt with, death must come. What my sin deserves is God's punishment and judgment and my death. So really, the troubling part of this is who could ever stand? Who of us could ever stand if this is the cost of our sin? Well, friends, the good news is this. The good news is that that clause for the wages of sin, there's not a period at the end of that clause. There's a comma and after the comma, there's a but. But for the, wage, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, friends, the truth is, is that our sin deserves death. But the truth also is that the one, the only one who didn't deserve death because he was without sin, Jesus, he died in our place. That where Achan, this one from Judah, the tribe of Judah, had failed where he had disobeyed, where he had rebelled against God, one who came later from the tribe of Judah succeeded. When he was tempted, he did not give in. He fled. When he was confronted by God's law, he kept it. He was without sin. He was holy and blameless, and he used his sinless life for us sinful people. That is the good news. That where Achan failed, Jesus won. That through one man's death came the death of others, but through one man's death, the death of Jesus came life. For 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, For our sake he, that being God, made him, that being Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what we're being told in the New Testament, same as the Old, is that God doesn't withhold his judgment. It comes because of sin, but it came upon Christ. 
Jesus took on himself our sin. He died in our place so that we wouldn't bear the cost of our sin. But in the place where death would come, grace and forgiveness abounded. The wages of sin, the cost of sin, Achan's sin, Israel's sin, our sin is death. Our sin, friends, is so costly that it cost Jesus his very life. And so what we should do when we come across this passage, what we do when we are confronted by our sin, what we do when we stand before a holy God is we run to him, asking for forgiveness, repenting and turning to him, knowing knowing what our sin deserves and knowing what Christ has done in our place. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that you have given your Son, our Lord Jesus, who is without sin, who was tempted and did not give in, who kept your law perfectly and by his righteousness imputed that righteousness to us so that we would be your people that we would have life so that judgment wouldn't come upon us. We thank you for that. And so we pray that you would show us your holiness. You would show us your perfection. You would reveal to us our sin and you would draw us to yourself, clinging to Christ, the one by whose blood we are made clean. And we pray all this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.